Hello, this is Rusty Reno, editor of First Things, and welcome to the next episode of the Editor's Desk, our regular series of conversations with authors in First Things magazine. And today I am speaking with Father Michael Nazir Ali, author of From Anglican to Catholic in the April issue, April 2022 issue of First Things. Welcome to the podcast, Father Michael. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm very glad to be with you. Now, you have a dramatic story to tell about your migration, your movement from being a bishop in the Anglican Church to entering the Church of Rome. What, and that, you say, happened fairly recently. Well, yes. I mean, in in terms of reception and ordination, it only happened... um, about four months ago, just over four months ago, uh, four or five months ago. and um, But of course, uh, it, it's not as dramatic as it sounds because it's been a gradual process. Uh, I've been, uh, as an Anglican, uh, a longstanding member of the Anglican Roman Catholic International Commission and also another commission set up uh, by the Anglican Communion and the Roman Catholic Church on advancing uh, sacramental unity called YACOM, the International Anglican Roman Catholic Commission on Unity and Mission. So, yes, I've been thinking about many of these issues a long time. And as you, there's a, a kind of a negative story and a positive story, as I detect in your piece. Uh, there's a growing sense of disease, I guess, and and concern about Anglicanism. Um, You, you, I guess Anglicanism, you said, commends itself as being reformed in theology and apostolic in ministry. (laughs) And and you begin to wonder whether that's actually a sustainable uh, affirmation. Well, yes, I think in the light of recent events, I mean, what I have said in the past was that At the time of the Reformation, Anglicanism was able to retain both the deposit of faith and um, uh, the apostolic ministry. But uh, in the light of developments and the way in which things are going, at least in the West, um, I uh, am left to wonder whether either of them is safe in that tradition. I think that would be the right way to put it. So you look at, there's a, there was a series of, because you were on the Anglican-Roman Catholic dialogue, you were acutely aware of the crisis that ordination of women, first to the priesthood and then to the episcopacy, posed to that, to that process. And that was received by your Catholic colleagues with a bit of a shock. Well, um, what I uh, have been aware of is successive popes um, and uh, senior officials at the Vatican writing to successive archbishops of Canterbury, imploring them not to go ahead, uh, first of all, with the ordination to the presbyterate, and then even more strongly with the question of the episcopate, uh, because this would jeopardize the archic agreement on ministry and ordination, which uh, may have made, in their view, 
uh, a reconsideration of Anglican orders possible. And the the replies that they were getting uh, over all those years was, well, even if we wanted to prevent this, we couldn't do so because the provinces will do whatever they wish to do. Uh, and in fact, that is that is what happened. Um, so, uh, I mean, that raised the question in my mind, I mean, not only on this issue, but on many others, that when Anglicans agree something with an ecumenical partner, what mechanism is there for such agreement actually to stick? And uh, in fact, I discovered that there wasn't any such mechanism. So it, these these particular issues bespoke a, a deeper crisis of authority in Anglicanism. Yes, and it wasn't just this issue. I mean, there are a number of other issues. You know, we arrived at an agreement on morals, uh, for instance, on how to approach contemporary moral questions. And then Anglicans have, on a number of fronts, actually gone and done the opposite. So, um, yeah, the question has has recurred in, in a variety of ways. You mentioned a uh, breakdown in marital fidelity within the presbyterate in Anglicanism. I certainly, I was a, I was an Anglican here in the United States, and and uh, you know the thrice married bishops um, were. I thought, I mean, you know, I was in the midst of this great debate about homosexuality and so on, but I could see behind that was a uh, lurked a, a more pervasive breakdown of discipline with respect to marriage among, I mean, it wasn't a matter of homosexuality at all. It was just a matter of, um, I don't know, being overwhelmed, I guess, by the mores of contemporary American society and not being able to withstand uh, the breakdown of marriage in the wider culture. Yes, I think this is the, uh, whilst uh, positively Anglicanism has a way of relating to culture that could be a strength, it's also a weakness that uh, there has from the very beginning been a tendency to capitulate to, uh, to political power, to cultural mores, um, as you say, um, and this is now uh, manifest um, in the West in Anglicanism in, in a very, a very clear way, um, and it cannot be ignored. And this matter of authority to be able to hold the line, I think authority is actually very crucial for holding the line, is related to uh, a kind of crisis of apostolic continuity. Um, yeah, you, you, I think there's an intermediate point there before we get to uh, magisterium and so on, uh, which is, uh, you know, the, this deposit of faith idea that um, how do we help the faithful to make decisions if there's no clearly recognized body of teaching to do so? Uh, even as a point of departure. Uh, and then, of course, uh, there is the question about an effective teaching authority, um, which 
clearly has been found to be absent in the many crises that Anglicanism has had in the last 50 years. Um, and I, I don't just mean um, the authority of the universal primate. I think there is also uh, authority to be re uh, to be exercised at, at every level, the authority of the bishop, for instance, and uh, even of a parish pastor, parish priest in his parish. Um, and I used to say to people, um, you know, if I am um, saying something and you disagree with me, which they often said they did, well, that's fine. You know, who am I after all? But if you disagree with the teaching of the church, then as a bishop, I have something to say about that. Um, but there is, you know, very little recognition of this now. And um, private interpretation is just rampant. Yes, I, I, that was that was my experience also as as an Anglican. Um, every man a pope. Uh, it it it's hell on Christian unity. Actually, <laughs> uh, there's there's um, I taught at a Jesuit university, and there was certainly quite a bit of dissent. But because the because the magisterium sort of set down the the main outlines of the faith. Those who were in dissent, um, actually, it, it made for uh, a more peaceful environment. Let's put it that way, because everything was not always up for grabs. Yes, well, this is this is right, and uh, I think that is also true, actually, of the limits of magisterium that the that the teaching authority can uh, can declare and clarify in certain circumstances, the faith of the church, but it cannot change that faith. Um, so that also, I think we need to, to remember. I mean, that takes me to my observation as, as I was reading the piece. As a member of Archic, it clearly, you had a bird's eye view of the failures of post-Vatican II ecumenism, it, it kind of was being dashed on the rock of, of these, um, these uh, events in, in Anglicanism. But it's pretty clear from reading you that the ecumenical movement was actually really crucial for your ability to move into uh, the Catholic Church in the sense that it, it actually helped you resolve and illuminate questions that for centuries as people had thought to be these insuperable barriers. I mean, I think, for example, sola scriptura, um, where you discuss, as you just said, that whatever the magisterium means, it it's a deepening uh, of the scriptural, the whole counsel of God, as you as you describe it. It's not an alternative to it, and there are other areas as, as well. I mean, by faith well, alone. Yes. Well, indeed. Yeah. I mean, justification by faith, for instance. I think the patient work done by the Lutherans and the Catholics on justification by faith in terms of the background in scripture and history and doctrine, uh, which resulted in the joint declaration is of huge um, significance uh, for those who've always, uh, I mean, those Anglicans particularly, who always thought with Hooker that this was the grand question 
that hung between Rome and Anglicanism. Well, I remember um, one of our sessions uh, of Archic that Cardinal Caspar, who had been a member of Archic actually before he became uh, the president of the Pontifical Council for Christian Unity, who came to address us. And he said, well, you've got to realize that since the joint declaration, the doctrine of justification by faith is a cornerstone doctrine of the Catholic Church by which it orients itself to Christ, and that it teaches nothing that contradicts that uh, doctrine. So, I mean, that was back to the debate between Augustine and Pelagius, and uh, and very welcome for me to hear, though, of course, it sounded strange to some of my Anglican colleagues. I mean, I agree completely. I, I think that the Joint Declaration is probably the, the finest fruit, the, the fullest, uh, most important achievement of the modern ecumenical uh, movement. Uh, and I do find it convincing that Although Catholics and Protestants and Lutherans have different ways of characterizing salvation in Christ, that that um, they're not in any kind of fundamental disagreement that our salvation in Christ is by grace alone, um, and, and a lot of it turns on the technical definitions of the words like faith, <laughs> which I think yes, yes. can be taken and in a narrow and in a broad sense, and yes. Yeah. Um, but I, think those, I mean, the joint declaration has shown that these can be either complementary or they can be held in tension. I mean, you don't need to resolve. After all, even within the Protestant tradition, there is high Calvinism and Arminianism and so on. And um, these, these, some of these things don't need to be resolved in, in their finer details. Uh, but scripture you had mentioned, yes, I mean, you know... Uh, Second Vatican Council uh, on Dei Verbum, the um, whole business about the immutability of Scripture, the once for allness of it, um, the uh, the way in which um, Scripture orients uh, the church, the church's teaching, uh, all of those things, and uh, Utunum Sint, uh, Saint John Paul II's very important ecumenical encyclical uh, actually sets out uh, scripture as the supreme rule of faith. I mean, this is exactly right. And he then goes on to say, but of course we need tradition with a capital T uh, to understand what scripture teaches. And I think that also must be right. Um, a lay person who's just joined the ordinariate was saying, at last I've got rid of this business about constant private interpretation. Uh, so, yeah. And it, it, Anglicanism had its own version of authoritative tradition, you know, the ecumenical councils. That was, uh, I think, as I recall from my Anglican days, always um, affirmed as the, frame, the, the um, authoritative framework for interpreting scripture. The, well, that's right. And I think yeah, go on, sorry. Well, and the one of the things about the Second Vatican Council and the Church in the aftermath is the, uh, the the Council called for a deeper engagement with Scripture, and I think that's actually been the case for Catholic Catholicism in the West over the last two generations. I think contemporary Catholicism is much more engaged with Scripture than perhaps 
the ordinary lay Catholic was in 1955. I think that that's absolutely right. I mean, just going to Mass, you know, you get four readings of Scripture, um, you know, the, um, from the Old Testament, the Psalms, the Epistle, the Gospel, plus whatever else there might be in the liturgy. I think, uh, yes, and um, various uh, documents from uh, from the Pope and others have taken to arguing uh, by starting with Scripture and so on, which has been, I think, very, very good indeed. Um, I still think that Anglicanism has something to offer the wider Catholic Church um, in terms of how to study Scripture. Uh, that is both critical and reverent, uh, and um, how to relate it to to sort of surrounding culture and things like that. And I hope that the ordinariates will offer that uh, way of handling the Bible. Uh, but it has certainly, uh, since the council, as you say, it has certainly begun. Yeah, I, I agree. There, there is a. There's a tradition of academic study of the Bible that's far less antagonistic or contrastive between modern methods and and churchly reading in the Anglican tradition that would be characterized by by uh, um, Protestant traditions on the continent, it seems to me, especially in the German context. Um, yeah, I, I think you know somebody like uh, Walter Moberly is a good example in the contemporary context of you know. Fully conversant with contemporary academic uh, discussions, but able to read in a in a way that's churchly without being merely pious. Um, yes, I think that's right. I mean, you know, there are people like N.T. Wright and yes. others who are doing uh, similar things. Uh, but I think if this goes back. Actually, there is a fundamental tension uh, between doing theology the Alexandrian way and doing uh, theology the Antiochian way. Mm. And I think uh, the Anglican way of doing theology is from Antioch. It is uh, inductive, it's historical, uh, it's um, critical, whereas I think there is another tradition which is seen and was seen in the past anyway in medieval in the medieval church, which was speculative, allegorical, and so on. And I think both have their value. Uh, but I, there is a contribution that the Anglican tradition, even within the Catholic Church, can make. Let's, what about transubstantiation, or, or maybe the better way to put it, I think of the Cranmerian liturgy, the full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice once offered. Uh, I, I've certainly been challenged by Anglicans that Catholicism has a, a false view of the Eucharistic sacrifice as being a being a re-sacrifice. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, well, I mean, again, I think the, the whole business of anamnesis and the relation of anamnesis to scripture as a whole, not just Eucharistic sacrifice, is very important. So, I mean, every Passover celebration is a participation in the original Passover. 
and so every celebration of the Eucharist is a participation in Calvary. I think 1 Corinthians 10 is quite clear about this, that uh, uh, by comparing how people sacrifice, how people participate in sacrifice in Judaism and also in uh, paganism, it compares that with how Christians participate in the sacrifice of Calvary when they uh, take the bread and take the cup. So, uh, I mean, that participation idea is quite important, the making present and the participating. Um, yeah, I mean, that. I, I don't know if I quoted that hymn in the article from William Bright about uh, what he never can repeat, he sets forth day by day. I mean, I think that is it. <laughs> no, and you did quote that. That's people, beautiful. Well, yeah, I love that in. Um, I mean, in our cake, when we were asked about this point blank, we issued some clarifications where we said, you know, well, in, you know, people said, what, what do you believe? Are you talking about transubstantiation or this or that? And we said, well, what we are talking about, because our intention was to get beyond the sort of controversy to a new way of expression of the authentic faith of the church, that if before the Eucharistic prayer, someone asks, what is this? The believer will say it is bread. Um, if after the Eucharistic prayer, the same question is asked, the believer will say, this is the body of Christ. Um, I mean, uh, and um, how this is expressed, this um, real presence of the, the sacrifice of Christ in the Eucharist, uh, will, of course, vary from time to time. And theologians will try to express this in, in new and creative ways, as indeed do the traditions um, themselves. Um, but I think to deny that the sacrifice of Christ is present at the Eucharist and the believer feeds on that sacrifice would be, I think, a denial of apostolic teaching. Mm. You conclude by saying, in effect, is that to leave is not to abandon. And you express your hope, and I share it, by the way, as someone who left Anglicanism and entered the church I wish every success um, for my Anglican brethren as they seek to proclaim the gospel in, in, these, in these times. So I, I guess I'd like to conclude our conversations by just what are your thoughts about the future of faith in the West? Well, that's a very, yes, I mean, that, that depends on us to some extent, of course, <laughs> each one of us. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, uh, the key is what Leslie Newbegin used to say of making the Christian worldview credible again. And it is not that there's anything lacking in the Christian worldview. It is actually by far uh, the most satisfactory worldview that explains uh, all that is around us and in us. But uh, there has been, I think, Conspiracy is probably not too strong a word, a conspiracy to prevent this worldview being heard. Uh, and in fact, um, uh, secularity really doesn't have any equivalent 
uh, in terms of um, of um, strength of explanation. So uh, that that is the challenge: is how to get this heard. And of course, much of my work and my writing and so on has gone towards uh, um, ensuring that that this um, that the worldview does get heard, particularly in instances about dignity of the human person, the origin of um, beliefs about human equality, um, um, questions about fundamental freedoms, um, and um, the, um, the importance of the Christian worldview for policymaking and legislation today, because in the end, policy and legislation today cannot just be made in a moral and spiritual vacuum, which some people think it can. Uh, so I think those uh, the, those are the challenges. I mean, um, the problem, of course, is that many people have been encouraged since the 60s to order their lives in such a way that the Christian story is inconvenient for them. Uh, and this is very often the reason for a refusal to hear it. Uh, but we have to keep saying that this is the story that makes for personal and social flourishing, uh, and there's nothing else in the market uh, that can compete with it. Not easy, but but necessary and ultimately satisfying. I suppose all the good thing, good things in life must <laughs> the truly good things in the life must be hard won. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on this podcast and and uh, what what is your what is your your ministry at present well I'm continuing actually more or less with uh, what I've been doing um, which uh, some of it is teaching uh, in Oxford uh, some supervision of students some lectures um, uh, and um, supporting the persecuted church and developing its leadership I need your prayers for that. Um, uh, some, uh, a few new things are coming up. I've been invited um, to teach uh, a little at the Angelicum in the coming um, academic year. I look forward to that very much. Uh, so we'll see how things develop. Um, and I look forward to that. Well, thank you for your ministry. And thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. Bless you. Thanks.